0: Patrick, you're doing a good job with that singing. It sounds good in here this morning. Amen. Amen. Matt, I want to thank you, wherever you're at. I know you're here somewhere. I want to thank you for that awesome table talk. That was great. I appreciated it. Jim, thanks for that opening prayer. You got to thank our guys from time to time so they'll want to keep coming up to serve, right? No, they all did a wonderful job here and we appreciate each of you as you step up and help to serve this congregation and serve the Lord as we worship him in spirit and truth. If we have any visitors that are with us here this morning, as I often say, you're our honored guest. And if there's any questions or comments that you have about what we do, what you see, how we worship, please allow us to answer those questions uh, before, you have, uh, before you leave here today. Love to answer any questions for you and to set up maybe even a personal Bible study if that is your, if that is your goal or if that is your interest. And so we love studying the Word here at Lincoln Park, do we not? Amen? We love studying the Word here at Lincoln Park, and so anybody, members included, if you're interested in Bible study, that's something I often say. Uh, If you want an evening study, I can come to your home, you can come to mine, whatever's easier for you. We can study the Scriptures together and answer any questions that you may have. You know, this morning we're in uh, part three of our uh, Resurrection series, and this will be the last part. And I just did a couple parts as we were leading up, and today we're at the tomb. And so... You know, the, the world calls this day Easter. They have a whole Christian calendar dedicated to Easter, into the Lenten season, into the Easter season, if you will. But we know that we celebrate the Lord's resurrection 52 Sundays a year, do we not? We, so, we celebrate it each and every week we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, why do we celebrate and partake of the Lord's Supper? To remember His death, His burial, His resurrection. To remember what He has done for us. That's why he says, it says on the front of the table, this do in remembrance of me. We partake of the Lord's Supper to remember his sacrifice each and every week. We remember his resurrection every week. And so brethren, I, I, I've been looking at the resurrection uh, in a couple different aspects than we normally do. If you remember over the last couple weeks, we looked at uh, two weeks ago, why Jesus had to raise from the dead. And why did he raise from the dead, but also remain here for 40 days? Last week, we looked at the sign of Jonah, and what does the sign of Jonah mean in connection with, well, the resurrection? And now today here, this morning, I want us to kind of put ourselves in the, uh, in the sandals, if you will, of the disciples. I want, to put, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, because I want us to consider the tomb here this morning. For some, putting ourselves in the sandals of the disciples, it could be easy, because well, you know, some of us are not foreign to despair, are we not? And, but for others, it may be more difficult because maybe, maybe you're a little bit younger in life and maybe you haven't, or maybe you've been blessed where you haven't had to deal with a lot of despair. But I want us to put ourselves in the sandals of these disciples uh, on this day and on the, on, for Friday, the Saturday, and then finally to Resurrection Sunday. I want us to really kind of go back and think about them for a moment. Because if you want to follow along in the scriptures, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 a lot today. If you want to open up your scriptures, open up your Bibles, that's where we're going to be. I'll have passages on the screen behind me, but Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 through 66, that's going to be the crux of today's lesson. So brethren, as I said, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You've got to remember the disciples, they must have been devastated. Why do you think they must have been devastated? They had been inspired by a man. They had been inspired by a a teacher, by a rabbi, by the Son of God. And so they were inspired by his teachings, and they had decided to follow Jesus. They had decided to willingly, voluntarily leave everything behind. And they left their families, they left their homes, they left their jobs, they left their friends, they left their hobbies, and they followed this man Jesus. And they walked with Jesus and they seen some amazing things. You go back and you study out the scriptures. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of these disciples? I mean, these early disciples to see, to walk with Jesus, to hear Jesus, to see how he interacted, to see how he spoke, to see the, the, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. These men had, had, had seen him multiply the few loaves and the few fish to feed thousands. We had, they had seen him walk on water. They had seen him calm the storm. They had seen him uh, show how he has power over life and death. He has power over Mother Nature. You know, he, they seen the great miracle of the great catch of fish when he told them to lay down their nets. He seen him uh, do all kinds of uh, healings. Uh, they, they seen him heal the broken limbs. They seen him restore um, the ability to, to have a better life for those who were lamed or paralyzed. He's seen them raise people from the dead. So brethren, these, these, these individuals, they were watching Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and they must have just been just out of their mind ecstatic about them being the disciples, them get to follow Jesus in all that he's doing. And last Sunday, scripturally speaking that is, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem triumphantly, did he not? when you study out the scriptures, this past Sunday, uh, he would have entered Jerusalem triumphantly, and it seemed to be a perfect climax to what they know and what they have seen. They have this victory parade, so to speak, right? And Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and they're they're shouting jubilantly, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! And they watched as they were waving palm branches and throwing flowers, and here comes Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, in verses 1 through 11, and he's... He's coming in victoriously, so to speak. And everything must have confirmed what the disciples have already been thinking that they followed the right man. That they made the right choice to leave everything behind. And then all of a sudden, he's dead. Can you imagine the despair? Can you imagine the questions that must have, must have arisen in their minds? How could things have gone so wrong? What exactly has happened here? What, what, what are we going to do now? So ask yourself, what do you do when your heart is filled with despair? What do you do when the world that you're living in seems to be falling apart? The life that you think you're building and leading seems to be falling apart. What do you do when you have despair? <coughs> Brethren, how you conduct yourself in this life How you conduct yourself will speak volumes about your faith, but it will also speak volumes about maybe your lack of faith. So let's examine the scene at the tomb this morning for a few minutes. When we look at this next passage, of scripture on the screen behind me, or this first passage, to begin with, the Bible tells us of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And its scriptures tell us in Matthew 27, starting in verse 57. When it was evening, there, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who's, who himself was also uh, who, who had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus's body, and Pilate had ordered it to be given. And so, what do we know about Joseph of Arimathea? Well, the bottom line is, we don't really know a whole lot about Joseph, but there are a few passages. There are some things that we can know about him from the scriptures. We know that, uh, uh, that first of all, he's from Arimathea, right? And that's about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. As towns go, Arimathea is a, kind of a small town. It's, really, it's not really well-to-do. It's not really much of anything. But we know that, evidently, jo- uh, Joseph... He was, something, uh, he was something of importance. I know that because when you study out the scriptures as a whole, remember, when you study out the scriptures, you don't just look at any one verse. You look at the collection of verses on any given topic or person as you study them out. And in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 15 and verse 43, it tells us that he was a prominent member of the council. Well, what does it mean he was a prominent member of the council? It means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the supreme judicial authority of Israel. You know, the ones who had illegally condemned and killed Jesus? Yeah, he was a member of that council. But we also know in Luke chapter, 30, uh, Luke chapter 23 and verse 51, it also says that Joseph was a good and upright man. But even more than that, it says he had not consented to the decision... To put Jesus to death. Why? Because he was a disciple of Christ. Secondly, we know that Matthew tells us that he was rich. I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems to... I, feel just, I just feel like sometimes we think that, that Jesus only came to the poor and the destitute. But we know that Jesus came for the poor, the middle class, and the rich. Jesus came to call all people unto himself. I know that because in John chapter 32, Jesus, or John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus himself had said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. You see, brethren, Jesus came to minister to all people of all backgrounds. Anybody who would be willing to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior was welcomed by Jesus. And thirdly, we know that Joseph, he had an acquaintance. He had acquaintance that we learned about in John chapter 3. You guys remember Nicodemus, don't you? And so Nicodemus was the one who helped Joseph to bury Jesus. I know this because in John chapter 19 on the screen behind me in verse 39, it says Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, talking about Jesus, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds worth. Think about that. In that day and age, to bring a hundred pounds worth of aloe and myrrh and spices, that would have cost a pretty penny, going back in that day and that time. And then in Matthew 27, verse 59 and 60, the scriptures tell us, Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a linen cloth, he placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock, and he rolled the big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. So what is the point of looking at this section of scripture? Well, it is, part of it is to find out who Joseph of Arimathea is. Why is it that he felt compelled to, to take his own tomb that was cut out of stone, that was waiting for him sometime in the future, and to use it for, the, uh, for another individual? Brethren, Joseph and Nicodemus, they had worked together, they had teamed up, they shared the cost. Why did they share the cost? Why did they feel con, uh, compelled to do this? Well, it tells us in John 19 and 38. Because it says, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. But notice the second part of that sentence. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Because he feared the Jews. You know, brethren, if you go back and you were to look at John chapter 12. We looked at a little bit of that this morning. 46 through 50 in Bible study. But if you go back even a few verses before that's about verse 42. It says, even many of the rulers... Even many of the prominent men were confessing Jesus, but they would not do so publicly because they were were afraid of the response from the leaders. You don't think members of the Sanhedrin would be worried about what the other members of the Judicial Council, Supreme Council, would have thought if they were secretly following Jesus? And so brethren, we know that John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple, but he was secretly a disciple. And this kind of makes me think of an illustration I've heard in the past. It reminds me of this little boy who had decided to adopt this dog. And someone asked him, he said, hey, what kind of dog is that? He said, oh, that's, that's a police dog. And the man chuckled for a minute. He looked at it, he goes, I've got to be honest, it really doesn't look like a police dog. He says, that's because he's in the Secret Service. <laughs> you know, you think about that little illustration, right, and how cute that is. Brethren, I'm here to tell you that there are too many Christians who seem to be in the secret service. There are too many Christians who have the who, who have the desire to want to follow Jesus, but they kind of do so secretly. They're maybe they don't maybe want to uh, acknowledge it uh, subconsciously that they're embarrassed maybe or that they're ashamed maybe or what other people might think. But there's too many people who call themselves Christians in the world. Who don't openly, um, who don't openly uh, confess Jesus, right? Who don't openly take Jesus out to their friends. Don't try to plant the seeds of Scripture. Don't try to live according to His Word. Don't try to teach others what Jesus has commanded us. And so brethren, they want to be disciples, but like Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, they're not really sure they want anybody else to know. And there are too many people who recognize or claim to be Christians who, t- who happen to be, I guess you could say, in the secret service. Now maybe you get back to Joseph of Arimathea. You think about Nicodemus, who came to him by night, by the way. And you think about these two individuals. The one that they were secretly admirers of, maybe secretly disciples of, as the scriptures say. We think about these individuals, and now the only recourse they have is to try to make amends. And so they team up, they share the cost, and they bury their Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, Matthew 27 and 61, we also learn that it wasn't just Joseph and Nicodemus. The women also came to the tomb. Where the Scriptures tell us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there at the tomb opposite of the tomb. And so, brethren, we, we have to realize that Jesus, He acted very differently towards women than the rabbis, than the Jewish leaders did. Did he not? I mean, Jesus treated them with respect. Jesus acknowledged the presence of the women that were in and around him. Jesus spoke to them in public, which is something that no rabbi and no Pharisee would be caught doing. Why? Because of their own man-made traditions that were put in place. And so the women of, of Judaism really kind of were like second-class citizens in some, in some, in, in I guess you could say in some sense. And so the women, they had been with the others at the cross. When the disciples, when the men of Jesus Christ, the disciples, the apostles, they fled out of fear, who was standing at the cross? Oh, there was one of them. John was there. But it was the women. The women didn't care. They weren't concerned about the persecution. They were there to be there for their Lord, for their Savior. They were to be there for the Son of God. And they were there at the foot of the cross. And brothers and sisters, they were weeping as Jesus died. But we also know it wasn't just uh, Arimathea or Joseph. It wasn't just uh, Nicodemus. It wasn't just the women. They were also the enemies of the cross. They were also the enemies of Jesus. Notice what it says, continuing in Matthew 27, starting in verse 62. The Scriptures tell us, Now on that day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered together uh, with Pilate. And they said to him, Pilate, sir... We remember that when Jesus was still alive, this deceiver said that after three days I will rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure, made more secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples, may, they, they may come, they may steal the body away, and they may say to the people that he has risen, and the last deception will become worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have, you have a guard, go and make it as secure as you know how. And then it says in verse 66, And they went, and they made the grave secure, along with the the guard, and they set the Roman seal upon it. There's an author, his name is James Stewart. And James Stewart said that, in one of his writings, he said that this is the most pathetic sentence, the most (coughs) pathetic sentence in human literature, is that Pilate said to the priest, Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. Go and secure the tomb of a dead man. We already know that he's dead because we knew that he was dead on the cross, but then we took a spear just to make sure and we jabbed it in his side. Blood and water come flowing out, it, the signifying death. But hey, go secure the tomb, anyways, to make yourself feel better. Stuart, he he asks the question. He says, What would you say about a man who stands in the gray of dawn? In the gray of dawn, and says to the rising sun, Stop! You cannot soar into the heavens today. Or what would you say to a man who stands on the beach and draws a line in the sand and commands the, 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 the tide and says to the tide that you have to halt. You're not allowed to cross this line today. You would look at the individual and you would say you're out of your mind. That you're mad. So what would you say to Roman soldiers who stood by with spears in hand, guarding the tomb which holds the Lord's, the, the, the Lord of life, trying to keep him from rising from the dead? Brethren, you see the, the correlation there. As we think about the tomb this morning, there's really four lessons that we need to learn. The first lesson that all Christians should learn from the tomb and from the story of the tomb and the resurrection is that we need to be realistic. <clears throat> the Christian life can be an emotional roller coaster, can it not? I mean, think about the disciples that I mentioned here this morning. For the early disciples of Christ, it was exactly that it was an emotional roller coaster. On Palm Sunday, it was a mountaintop experience, right? Palm Sunday, Jesus is entering Jerusalem triumphantly. Then came Friday. Then came the cross. Then came Sunday. Then came the resurrection. Emotional ups and downs, ups and downs, and then back up again. And there are some who believe that that once we become Christians, that our troubles will just suddenly vanish away, and that once I give my life to Christ, there's some who think that, well, everything should just be hunky-dory, and that my life should be roses. Brethren, that is the exact opposite of what the Scriptures teach. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus had said that you could expect. But as we mature in our faith, brethren, as we become better, uh, as we understand the Scriptures to a deeper degree, we start to learn to be more realistic, do we not? We start to have a a little further, deeper understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we can learn to think like the Apostle Paul uh, thought when he wrote to the people of Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12 and 13, the Scriptures tell us, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in once, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, brethren, in order to get to that type of thinking, you have to be more realistic about your faith and about about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, knowing that if they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you, knowing that if He suffered, that we will suffer. But brothers and sisters, there's also another lesson we need to learn. As Christians, not only do we need to learn to be realistic, but we have to learn to be patient. We need to learn to be patient because, let's just face it, desperate circumstances, sometimes, well, sometimes they can be quickly, uh, quickly reversed. I mean, for the, for, the, for the early disciples, right? Between Friday and Sunday, there was a whirlwind of emotions. It was quickly reversed. On Friday, they are in despair, and by Sunday night, they're on top of the mountain again. They're having that feeling in their heart like they had with the triumphal entry. They're back on top of the mountain. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And sometimes things can be quickly reversed, but I'm here to tell you, brethren, that there are a lot of times where things are not quickly reversed, and that despair will set in. But you, being realistic, being patient, have to learn to grow and to mature in your faith to be able to deal with the despair of life. Sometimes we wonder, why does God allow us to to find ourselves in despair? Why does God allow us to find ourselves in these circumstances? Why does God allow, fill in the blank. How many times have we asked the question, why does God allow something to happen? You see, brethren, the answer ought to be clear. It ought to be clear because God allows us to, to suffer various trials so that we will turn to Him. So that we will look to Him. Isn't it interesting that when the time of war breaks out, what happens to church buildings in times of war? They begin to get fuller. You start to see people from your community you never seen before sitting beside you in the pews. What happened after 9 11? You guys remember the terrorist attacks? You remember when the country kind of coalesced, when the country kind of came together? What happened in the church buildings? All of a sudden the church building started to get fuller. People started coming back to God. Why? Because they were suffering trials. There was despair. And we see, brethren, that when 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 people, humans, that are God's creation, start to suffer, they begin to turn back to God. Brethren, oftentimes it is only when we humans are desperate. Oftentimes it's only when we're in despair that we really recognize God, that we really look to turn to God. You know, it's an indicator of how well or how good your faith is is, is, is what you do with God in the good times. We know what you're going to do with God in the bad times, you're going to turn to God. But what do you do to God? What do you do with God in the good times? How often do you seek God and pray to God when, you're, when the things are going good, your marriage is good, your career is good, your children are, uh, are behaving, everything's going well. Do you still remember to turn to God? You know, we think about this. Why does God allow things to happen? Think about Moses for a moment. Why did God allow Moses to reach the shore of the Red Sea? You got Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit. Why did he allow him to reach the Red Sea? Oh, what did you do, Moses? Did you bring us out here to die? What did God want them to do? He wanted them to trust him. They seen all the power, they seen the ma- not the magic, they seen the, the, the miracles, the signs, the wonders that God was already performing. And God said to Moses, he gave him instructions, and we know what the, uh, what the, what the result was. They turned to God, Moses obeyed the instructions, The Red Sea parted, they passed through on dry ground. As soon as they get to the other side, The water encloses and and buries the army of Pharaoh. Why did God allow them to get to the Red Sea? Get to the shore? Thinking that they were in trouble? So that they would remember to turn to God. Brothers and sisters, why did God permit Joseph to spend two years in an Egyptian prison? Joseph was an upright, righteous, and holy man. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who was constantly looking to be found pleasing in the sight of God. And so we know that God was with them, because when he was in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's house was, was flourishing. And Potiphar recognized it, and so he put him over his house, so that all things would be in his control. But then all of a sudden, because of evil, he ends up in jail. Because of false accusations, he ends up in prison. Why did God allow him to spend two years there? Well, brethren, we understand that the answer is so that he would be dependent completely on God. All of a sudden God had given him the ability to decipher dreams. He deciphers the dream of the cupbearer and the baker. And then the the cupbearer, he turns his back and he forgets the promise he made to Joseph when Joseph said, Remember me when you go back into service. Two years go by and there's still no remembrance. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a dream. He's angry. He's about to put people to death. And the cupbearer says, oh yeah, I remember this guy in prison who told me what was going to happen to me. And all of a sudden, he rises. Joseph rises with the providence of God working through him to be the prime minister of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, why did he suffer those trials? In order that he would look back to God. Brethren, think about Jonah. Jonah had to be thrown overboard into the stormy sea. Why? Well, in order for God to use a special fish, a sea monster, if you will, to swallow him up, to get him to remember God. To get him to remember who he serves. To get him to repent of the sin, to cry out to God for help. And we know the rest of the story that the great fish vomited him up on the shore. He goes to Nineveh and does what God requires of him. And we see that the people of Nineveh repented for a time. Brethren, the third lesson that we need to understand that as Christians, we must be faithful. We must be faithful even when God doesn't change our circumstances. I think the ultimate test of faith is not What do we do when the problems are taken away? But I really believe the ultimate test of our faith is, what do we do when the problems are not taken away? How strong are you going to be when your problems remain? Maybe you're dealing with cancer at this time, and there's no cure in sight, and every day you're experiencing the the, the pain and the suffering and the the, the illness, or the effects of the treatments, and and you face this uncertain future. How is your faith in those moments? Maybe your spouse or your parent has Alzheimer's and you're taking care of them and you've been dealing with this for months or for years. How is your faith in those trials? Maybe you have a home life, a home situation where there's just stress and tension that is just constant. How is your faith in those circumstances? You see, brethren, the ultimate test of our faith is is what do we do if the problems that, that, that life throws at us, if they're not taken away? Do you remain faithful and true unto the Lord? Remember what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, what does it say? You have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and the glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And before we close this down, we get to the fourth lesson. The fourth lesson, brethren, is God's plans may be, and pretty much always will be, better than your plans. God's plans are going to be better than your plans. And I'm going to read you a little illustration before I close this lesson down. This is an illustration by the author Becky Pepper. And it tells, uh, it, tells uh, it gives a little part of a children's story. And the story is called Once Upon a Mountain. Once Upon a Mountaintop, it was about three little trees that were growing up on this top of this mountain. And the three trees were talking together one day. Yes, in children's stories, the trees actually communicate with one another. And one of the trees said to the other tree, he says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the tree thought about it, he answered, Well, when I look up to the heavens and see the sparkling uh, sparkling, uh, stars in the sky, I think to myself, I would like to be a treasure chest, one that holds diamonds and precious stones. The other tree said, he says, Well, when I grow up, I want to be part of a giant ship that's going to sail across the great seas, that's going to carry kings and queens and prominent individuals to their destinations. But then the one who originally, the other tree who originally asked the question, he says, you know, he goes, I just want to stay right here. I want to stay right here. I want to grow tall. I want to grow straight. I want to point up to heaven that everyone who comes up the mountain, looks at me, will think of God. That's all I want. So over the years, the trees, they continue to grow. And finally, the men, as we often do, we come and we cut down these trees. We come and cut down these trees, and the first tree was delighted to find that he was taken to a carpenter shop. Because remember, he wanted to be a treasure chest. And so he was devastated when he discovered that he was not going to be made into a treasure chest, but he was going to be made into a feeding trough. And he instead, And instead of holding precious stones, he was going to hold the feed, the hay for the animals. And the animals would come and eat and slobber all over him every day. The second tree was delighted to find that he was being taken to the seaside. But he was devastated to discover he wasn't going to be some, uh, a part of some giant ship that was going to carry kings and queens. He was going to be part of a little fishing boat. And his cargo wasn't kings and queens, but dead, smelly fish. And the third tree was disappointed that he was cut down at all. Because remember, he had just wanted to stay on top of the mountain. And he was even more disappointed, brethren, when he was cut into beams and then he was placed in a pile and just cast to the side. Years had passed by and one day two people came to a stable. They came to this little stable in Bethlehem where the young feeding trough had grown old and worn and through the, year, through the years of constant use. And the old feeding trough watched as the woman gave birth to a baby and wrapped this little baby in swaddling cloths laid him in the feeding trough. And he thought to himself, this little tree, he goes, I am a treasure chest. He goes, I'm a treasure chest because now I hold the most precious thing that has ever come into this world. And the little tree was happy. More years had passed by and the second tree was sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And on board were strangers. On board were these, these lowly fishermen they seemed to be. But suddenly the winds came up and they blew fiercely against this little, this little fishing boat. The waves were crashing in. They become scared. And all of a sudden, this little ship says that this one, this one man stands up. He rebukes the sea. He rebukes the wind and tells it to be quiet and to be still. And the little ship suddenly recognized and realized that the task was not to carry kings, but to carry the king of kings. And the third tree, two more years had passed by. And one day, brethren, this third tree was yanked from the pile of lumber. He was placed on the shoulders of a man who had to carry it through the jeering crowds to a hill called Calvary. And when they got there, this beam was tossed to the ground. And the man who was carrying it was placed upon it. And this tree felt the penetration of the nails that were driven through the man's hands and into the wood. And as the people gathered around cursing and mocking the man, the poor little tree felt ugly and hated as the man had But then the man was taken down, he was buried in a tomb, and on the third day he raised from the dead. And that tree had said, Now I know that every time when men look at me, they'll think of God. Brethren, you see that little children's story, you see the illustration, and you can see how that applies to why we're here today. Resurrection Sunday. You have the feeding trough in which our Savior was born into Right? You have the fishing boat where Jesus had gave some of his, uh, some of his great teachings. Where he had uh, performed miracles. You have the cross of Jesus Christ that people look to even today, 2,000 years later. So as I close this lesson down, brethren, there are things that we need to do in our faith. First, we need to be realistic. We need to be patient. And we need to remember that God's plans are always better than our plans. And we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful even when God doesn't change our circumstances. That may be the hardest one of them all, but it is necessary. Brothers and sisters, God loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. But that everlasting life only comes to those who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So the last question I have for you this morning is, have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? What is the gospel? That's a question that has usually receives different answers. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And they often call it the good news. And it's good news, brethren, because Jesus died for you and me. He died to take away the sins of the world as the pure Lamb of God. You could enter into the waters of, Bapt- of the baptistry today. You can enter into those waters and receive the remission of your sins. Why? Because you're reenacting the death and the burial of, of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. You go down, you bury the old man of sin. We raise you up to newness of life. You receive the remission of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God himself will add you to the kingdom. If this is your desire this morning, come forward as Patrick stands and sings.